One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. But I'm afraid that the numpty class that we've identified many times on Planet Normal is going to be extremely reluctant to give up COVID. To link the migration issue with the security issue is not to spread hate or to be alarmist. It's to not be naive, in my view. One of the reviewers accused us of pimping the lab leak theory, which is an extremely unpleasant phrase to, to make about our book, I think. I do like the way you say pepper pig, Halligan. <laughs> I've been working on that. One. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, it turns out, co-pilot Pearson, that the principal role of the UK government isn't the safety and security of our people, nor the securing of a decent standard of living for all. The key aim of our Prime Minister is not, it seems, the building of societal structures that allow us, one and all, to strive for life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Oh no, dear Planet Normal citizens. The role of our Premier and the broader British Cabinet down on planet Earth, we now know, is to promote and defend the commercial and cultural merits of Peppa Pig. (laughs) That hairdryer-shaped animal star of a UK-created multi-million pound cartoon franchise for preschoolers, now broadcast in 180-odd countries. For the merits of Ab Pepper were a, in fact, the key subject of Boris Johnson's disastrously ill-prepared speech to the Confederation of British Industry this week. The government's relations with business are scratchy enough, and the Prime Minister's broader competence is in question, given ongoing scandals relating to second jobs for MPs, broader sleaze and an increasingly alarming migrant crisis. Now was not the time to deliver a speech so shambolic that the Prime Minister's being ridiculed on national TV by primetime entertainers like Anton Deck. Could this be part of a clever, clever (laughs) Boris tactic to keep attention away from Keir Starmer co-pilot? Or is it, in your view, simply more evidence... Are Prime Ministers losing the plot? I do like the way you say Peppa Pig, Halligan. I've been working on that. Pa-pa-pa-pa-pa. <laughs> no, that you was know... Penguin. That was the chocolate biscuits. <laughs> oh, it was. Pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa, quit pig. Well, you know, I think there might be a bit of a sigh of relief because I think the the, the, the country was worrying that it was uh, Carrie Johnson who was uh, pulling the Prime Minister's strings. But now it appears that it is Wilfred Johnson, aged 18 months, who, who via... <laughs> Who via a visit to Peppa Big World by his, with his dad? Um, oh my goodness! What what was it like? I mean, I just gave a speech. Well, it will be yesterday by the time Planet Normal listeners hear it. But in Leicestershire, and not uh, another award speech, surely you, you haven't won another <laughs> Wallace and Gromit cheese award. Uh, no, no, it was it wasn't. It was a very very nice um, gathering of um, mainly Telegraph readers, and I sat next to a Planet Normal fan, which Ooh. was yes, going on about all the different episodes, which was lovely. But I did take the elementary precaution of the speech giver which is to number your pages um <laughs> do you know what Liam years ago That's not like fair. <laughs> you've been having special speech training you can't expect the leader of the fifth biggest in the economy in the world <laughs> to get his speech page numbers in order no I know it is asking too much it brought back to mind about 20 years ago I appeared at a Savoy Hotel Literary Luncheon and the other guest on the bill was one Boris Johnson, um, you know, then a very good author and journalist. And it, oh my God, it was so funny. So he was sitting at the, um, at the guest table. Boris comes in late. He's the only person I've ever known who, instead of smoothing his hair before speaking, ruffles it up. So he'd sort of ruffled it up into a parakeet quiff. And then, I, <laughs> I, of course, your co-pilot, being a tragically unconfident sort of Welsh comprehensive girl, was there with the 18 pages of closely typed script. And Boris literally... <laughs> nothing changes. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. So Boris writes on a wine coaster. I swear it was five words. I mean, it was, it was absolutely 
completely unbelievable. So he went up and gave a fantastic speech, of course, um, with his marvellous, you know, diversions and improvisations. And then I got up and I said to the audience that I'd spotted him writing five words on a wine coaster. And I said, who is the old Etonian and which is the Welsh <laughs> comprehensive pupil? Uh, yes, it, it didn't look great, did it really? I'm a bit torn because I do think the CBI, it's probably a lot of sort of grumpy old Remainers, isn't it? And they hate him anyway. To me, it looked like he'd, uh, you know, Carrie had got up early to do her Pilates lessons at quarter to six and he'd been left minding the baby. I think that that's how he looked. He looked like he'd practically got sort of ready break down his tie, didn't he really? It's a perception, Liam, isn't it, that Philip Johnston, our, uh, you know, Marvellous Telegraph colleague and former Planet Normal guest, wrote a very good column in the paper this week, sort of saying there comes a point when a Prime Minister where too many things start to go wrong. And he was he reminded us, actually, that the Conservative Party can be a very ruthless beast when it wants to be. And they got rid of Margaret Thatcher when she had a 102 majority. So, you know, very, very good point. It's broken promises, isn't it? It was the tax increases. Then it was HS2. Then it was Owen Paterson debacle. Um, and now we're hearing rumours that letters are going in from disgruntled Tory MPs to the 1922 committee. I mean, it'll only be a handful, and, and mm. I think I think the I think the level is actually the sort of trigger point is about 54. So we're not there, but uh, Boris's personal ratings in the latest poll are minus 14. You know, isn't he the only game in town? I mean, Keir Starmer, nothing I see of Keir Starmer makes me think that man will one day be the prime minister. What do you think, Halligan? No, I don't think Keir Starmer will be Prime Minister. I don't think that is an unobjective point of view. I think any professional political analyst who's being even-handed would probably come to that conclusion. I do see signs of life on the Labour side, signs of competence and moving towards the middle ground. I think we did well, co-pilot, during Labour conference. Both you and I alighted on the business rate speech by Rachel Reeves, Shadow Chancellor, where she sounded a lot like Gordon Brown in the early 90s, trying to move Labour away from the left and towards Mm. fiscal competence and prudence. You know, Keir Starmer's speech to the CBI, had it not been for Boris Johnson's car crash, would have attracted a lot more attention than it did. It was on the same day and there were lines in it like, you know, we won't just spend cash for the sake of it. We are the party of prudence. So you got this idea that politics has inverted in on itself with the Tories. Rishi Sunak just delivering a budget at the end of last month, which pushed public spending to its highest rate in 70 years Mm, as a share mm. of GDP, with the Conservatives being the party of the working class, if you like, of the Red Wall, uh, and Labour now trying to position themselves as the party of fiscal prudence. Of course, you know, all canny voters, particularly the swing voters in the middle who decide UK elections, know much of it is nonsense and posturing. But it's still these changes in tone, mood and message that ultimately determine general elections. So I'm frustrated, like you, that Boris is the only game in town because I think the Tories would be much better off with a fair fight on their hands, with a decent opposition. You and I have both always said we need a really good opposition. We need a really good Labour Party that looks as if it could take office at any point in order to keep the Tories on their toes. And what we saw from Boris Johnson this week at the CBI, I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's a combination of his journalistic habits coming through. You and I know as as busy journalists, you know, it's not every week you write your best column, is it? There are, time, um, there no, are times no, when yeah. you think you are the only person in the country who's totally across an issue and you, know, you try and write really properly, you know, columns that break through and move the dial. But some weeks you just got to fill the hole, right? It's not as good as it usually is because you've got other stuff on, maybe longer projects, uh, other aspects of your work. That is that is inevitable when you're churning out one, two columns a, a week. It doesn't mean you don't care. It's just the way life is. And I think the problem is that the Prime Minister has now brought those those habits of a journalist to leading the UK, <laughs> to being the Premier of the UK. He thinks he can... Sometimes journalists wing it. We both know that. Sometimes journalists wing it just because you have to, because you're across so many things at so many different times, because we haven't got a staff and a secretariat and a whole Rolls-Royce civil service at our beck and call. But you shouldn't be winging it when you're the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You should not be giving three speeches in a single day, which he was 
on the day of that CBI speech. And I'm not surprised that a lot of Conservative MPs are now openly briefing against the Prime Minister. They're not coming on the record, but they are talking to people like me, you, like uh, Chris Hope, like Phil Johnston, you know, reputable journalists. And they're not just, you know, the the usual suspects. They're not just the ex-ministers, the grisly greybeards on the back benches who've seen power slip through their fingers and who are bitter that this is Boris's time. It's the, it's the new intake of Red Wall MPs. This is where his Achilles heel is, Alison. It's those 29 intake of MPs. A lot of them, about 100 of them, a lot of them are really impressive people. They're, they're not wedded to politics. They've often done other things in yeah. life. It's not like yeah. the, the big wave of Blairite MPs that came out and came through in the late 90s. These are often people from the Midlands, from the North, with real feel and hinterland and they know that their seats depend on Boris Johnson doing well. That's how the Red Wall was crushed. That's how these new Tory Red Wall MPs got their seats. And if they don't see Boris uh, improving soon, then they are going to start openly criticising him because they're going to have to in order to maintain their credibility with the voters that put them in office. And yet it is those new intake 2019 Red Wall Tory MPs upon whom this 80-seat majority depends. And as Phil Johnston brilliantly pointed out, and you just recounted, Maggie had a three-figure majority and they still got rid of her. Yeah, I think that we're seeing, aren't we, the Red Wall MPs you're describing, Liam. I mean, this week there was a, a flurry of defiance on the social care uh, changes, wasn't there? You know, that they're thinking it's going to be bad for poorer people in the north because they're going to have to give up a bigger percentage of their houses because, you know, the property down south is is very expensive. So I think that they were, I mean, I think about 19 openly rebelled, but there were a lot more who just abstained. And I think that when that discipline starts to break down, and I think the discipline's breaking down partly because we saw, didn't we, with the Owen Patterson, the fallout from that scandal was that um, the MPs had been told to go through the lobby and, you know, agree with the government. And then Boris did a U-turn, what, within about 24 hours. So they were left looking pretty damn stupid. So I think that they're more minded now to vote against him. But we've also got brewing, Liam, this huge migrant crisis, which Nigel Farage has been pointing out for well over a year. I mean, this is now out of control. I think there was a survey this week of Conservative members and it said 77% of them thought that the government's handling of the migrant crisis was, was too soft. So I think probably what we're seeing is these I mean you you probably know more about it than me really but huge tensions I think was pretty Patel's under enormous pressure yeah to do something to stop the pull factor of these hundreds indeed thousands of people coming across the channel even though it's now one of the worst times of the year to cross and a prime minister who I think is basically very worried about attacks from the sort of human rights lobby, um, the very left left leaning media. I mean, you can. One of the suggestions was that you would do with migrants this so called offshore processing, which is what Australia did to tackle its migrant crisis. But I just, I just don't think Boris has got the stomach to do it because you just know what would happen, don't you? You know, the the Guardian would start making its Guantanamo Bay comparison and they'd be having a go at him. And it would take real guts and strength, I think, to tackle this crisis. And I don't, don't know, what do you think, Liam? I, I, just don't, I just don't think he's, he doesn't seem to have it in him. And yet, this is going to be playing so badly on the doorsteps. We've got, remember, we've got two by-elections coming up, two MPs, very, very well-respected and loved Tory MPs. James Brokenshire and Sir David Amos, you know, the Tories would normally expect to hold those constituencies, particularly given the tragic circumstances of the the demise of the of the very uh, able men who held them. I mean, notably Sir David Amos, you know, being um, being stabbed to death. But I, I think we could see a, a bit of a shift because the the message I'm getting from my readers at the Telegraph and some Planet Normal listeners, absolute 
real fury, Liam, saying, you know, we're not we're not voting for this Conservative government, which doesn't seem to do anything Conservative. And I think Richard Tice, who we had on the leader of the Reform Party, I believe that Richard is standing as a candidate in Old Bexley and Sidcup. And he has said that on the doorstep, he is he's saying that Boris is no longer the electoral asset he was. Yeah, I think Richard Tice is a pretty canny operator, a pretty... Uh, interesting analyst of the political scene. Those two seats, you've got David Amos's South End seat, you've got James Brokenshire's Old Bexley and Sidcup seat, as you say, Ted Heath's old seat. They're both Tory heartlands. You know, these are East Londoners made good moving out yeah. to Essex and the coast, aspirational uh, households, you know, bootstrap Tories, if you like. It would be astonishing if if, if the Tories lost those seats. But I agree with Richard Tyson in the sense that I think the likes of reform um, could make inroads um, and there could be a low turnout. So those majorities could be significantly reduced, particularly in Old Bexley and Sidcup. I think even beyond the grave, Sir David Amos was such a well-regarded MP, no disrespect at all to the memory of James Brokenshire, who was a damn good minister from where I was standing. So I do think the vote will probably hold up there in honour of Sir David Amos. But across the board in these upcoming by-elections, the Tories are going to get a bit of a kick in the shins, I think, from the electorate, and and rightly so. And I agree with you on the migrant crisis. You've written a a really powerful column uh, in Wednesday's Telegraph, and we can put the link to that in the show notes to this episode. And you point out figures that we discussed on Planet Normal last week. You know, in 2019, a couple of thousand people crossed the channel in small boats. In 2020, it was around 8,000. It's going to be three times that this year. And as you say, Alison, the movement of people across the channel, the boats are getting bigger, more robust, though they're still far from safe, as we're now seeing tragically. But we're going to have 24,000, 25,000 people uh, this year. And the crossings are going on deep into the winter months. And it's this linking of illegal immigration with security concerns that is electorally extremely explosive because all it would have taken outside that maternity hospital yeah, in, in Merseyside would have been that detonator to have gone off properly and you would have had mothers and babies born and unborn, horrendous to think about, killed, maimed uh, and completely, you know, a chaotic situation that would have led to serious political changes. And you've got to start wondering, Alison, given that we know that Pretty Patel is trying to um, tighten the borders, she is in favour of offshore mm. processing, as you say. When is, when, when is she, when are her people going to start briefing against the Prime Minister? When is this row within the Conservative Party, which is being reflected in opinion polls across the country, if not reflected among many of the sort of establishment, uh, queasy-stomached media commentators out there in the country, particularly yeah. in constituencies <laughs> like, you know, the two constituencies that are up for by-election now but much across the broader country as well we shouldn't suggest that this is some kind of niche interest this is now mainstream politics when the numbers get this huge the cost is big but it's not only about the money or it's not even mostly about the money it's about security issues and in my experience Alison talking to voters talking to friends and acquaintances talking to people both in my professional and personal life the people that this really winds up the most is families who have emigrated here in the last one or two generations, people who have abided by the rules, who have done all the paperwork, who have done the right thing to make the system work and have made their lives here and made it to Britain as economic migrants and are contributing. It's those people who get really angry about migrants who jump the queue and give the whole idea of immigration a bad name. And they're an increasingly big political constituency and they tend to be swing voters. They tend to be people that own and run small businesses. They tend to be very influential people in their communities. And this is why I think this issue, the combination 
of upsetting existing immigrant communities, people who've come to the UK a generation or two ago and made good and contribute hugely, plus the security twist that's now happening, the linking. To link the migration issue with the security issue is not to spread hate or to be alarmist. It's to not be naive, in my view. And the Prime Minister needs to get his head around that and get his arms around this issue. Can we be a, a, a little bit fair? Give, I think give a little bit of credit where credit's due. I mean, we've seen all these riots and protests across Europe this week, haven't we? In the Netherlands, Austria was first trying to uh, introduce a lockdown for the unvaccinated, which of course was almost immediately unsuccessful because the vaccinated, you know, are uh, capable of contacting and transmitting the virus. But we are seeing things really bubbling over and turning incredibly aggressive on the continent as restrictions are reimposed. And what all credit to Boris Liam, and that is not a sentence that you can utter very much at the moment, but that decision now to lift uh, our remaining restrictions, almost all of the lockdown restrictions in July, July the 19th. And so we, it turns out that we were then able to have our wave of the spiking of the cases was happening in the summer, which isn't a huge issue for it's not the respiratory virus season we were well able to cope with that and now we're looking very very good indeed compared to all those people on the continent something that something that makes me laugh Halligan you're going to love this I mean literally all our you know all the usual suspects I mean you know don't tell Hugh Pym that things are going well in the UK because you know Mr BBC shroud waver is um you know can't say a good word about the UK performance and they absolutely loved it the broadcasters when they could point to oh isn't Austria doing well isn't Germany doing well we're so rubbish that sort of litany of complaints I mean and you know and now they're now they're having to you know to back off and they just don't know what to do with themselves I saw such a funny interview on the Channel 4 News you know how they've got their team of uh Scottish doomsters and there was this woman who I think is the professor of public health at Edinburgh and uh, through gritted teeth Halligan she was sort of saying well I'm not you know we can't say it's uh, well all I'm saying is it might not be a total disaster (laughs) which was that was that was the that was a major concession major concession but listen we um we didn't have any George last week. We had a few Planet Normal listeners. They get a bit disgruntled when we don't. Should we, should we have a, a little bit of George just to see what the picture is? So George is our senior source within NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, um, but we're very confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, which is why we report them. We can't independently verify them because by definition, uh, they're not yet published and sometimes they're not published at all. So George says there were 6,247 COVID inpatients in English hospitals on Tuesday, a fall of 167 over the previous day. The trend is most definitely downwards for all of the indicators. Admissions, inpatient diagnoses and COVID inpatients are all on a falling trajectory and have been for several weeks now. Remember, Liam, this is the winter. This is what's happening in winter. Discharges are keeping pace with admissions, although discharges should really be higher than they are. But the main reasons for not being able to discharge COVID patients is lack of availability of beds in care homes or in other rehabilitation settings. Each day, about half of patients who meet the criteria for being discharged are not actually discharged. Now, just think about that, Liam. Mm, Every day, half of the COVID patients in England who should be being discharged are not actually being discharged because there's nowhere for them to go. So so that's interesting. The care home crisis is biting. And that's keeping the net hospitalisation figure higher than it otherwise would be. Very considerably higher than than it would be. So so in fact, we're doing even better than these figures suggest. George goes on that just 5% of hospital beds are now occupied by COVID patients, although it's 25% occupancy in the ICU. So there are clearly still a small but significant proportion of people getting severely ill with it. Some 14% of the total COVID inpatients are in the ICU, are in intensive care. George says it's an encouraging picture, although 
Given all the lockdown nonsense going on in Europe, I can see Boris getting twitchy without too much provocation. Actually, Liam, I think really, you know, I think he's doing well to have held his nerve over this. And I think we are now in a, you know, in a very encouraging position. We've also got this, um, I don't know if you saw this, the Mail had the very good story, secret COVID exit plan, operation ramp down for when the emergency legal COVID powers end in March. So I think that that looks now like that's going to be the official end. Um, You know, that all the sort of self-isolation rules will change. The dreadful free COVID tests will stop. Um, They'll have a private testing market, obviously. And the 57 billion test and trace system may be shut down. The extremely successful 57, (laughs) 37 billion test and trace system may be be shut down. You're right, Alison. I think he has done quite well to hold his nerve on COVID. Though what's happening in continental Europe will obviously uh, impact uh, domestic politics too. For me, amidst all the data, uh, the the data series I follow most closely every day is deaths, and death rates now are one ninth of what they were back in January, uh, and I think that is and always will be the most important criteria. So, you know, no one knows what will happen. We're not definitely through this yet, but the signs are good, and it does seem that the UK has benefited, as you suggest from that Freedom Day back in July this year uh, and the the increase in T-cell immunity that that has engendered, along with, of course, the vaccine programme. Vaccines work, but also natural immunity works as well. And we can only keep our fingers crossed that the UK, through a combination of vaccine and T-cell immunity, is now through the worst of this pandemic. Well, you and I know that, co-pilot, and Planet Normal listeners know that, but I'm afraid that the numpty class that we've identified many times on Planet Normal is going to be extremely reluctant to give up COVID. I, I, I don't know if you saw, I had a, I had a go in the column this week. Um, in schools, which are perfectly safe now, not only are children uh, in many schools having to wear masks, but they are cancelling nativity plays, they're cancelling Christmas fairs, they're, you know, they're cancelling carol concerts, all these lovely events which children really need now. I mean, you know, they had last Christmas was was completely ruined. And my um, Velma's Numpty of the Week, do you want to hear the Numpty of the Week? Andy Kingdom, Public Health Director at East Riding Council. Mr Kingdom has warned of a, quote, little donkey effect with nativity plays <laughs> and other school events spreading coronavirus while youngsters could act as vectors for infection. Oh, shut up. Do shut up. There's absolutely no problem. Let them sing little donkey. Let them be Mary in the nativity play and get off with Joseph. You know, I mean, really. That was my favourite song at school. Go on then. Little donkey, little donkey, <laughs> on the dusty road. Oh. Got to keep on plodding onward with your precious load. Load. I loved oh. it. I, loved I know. It. Well, I can smell the school hall just by saying <laughs> those words. You know what, Alison, of the stuff you wrote this week, I thought you were at your angriest and your finest when you were talking about Bake Off, because surely we can oh. all agree. We can all agree. We can all Forget agree. Forget Chiggs. Forget Giuseppe. Yeah. Jürgen should have won. Jürgen should have won. Jürgen, the gentle German, he was robbed, wasn't he? He was robbed. Uh, he yes, was robbed. he was absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I mean, <laughs> to, to, to people who don't watch the show, this may all seem to be completely trivial. But there's something about seeing such a talented. I mean, he was the sweetest, most self-doubting man, wasn't he? As as um. As uh, my husband said, he said that the Germans have become the least Germanic people in Europe now. I mean, you know, uh, Jürgen, who got the sort of nickname of Winnie the Pooh for being like, sort of humming to himself. And this incredibly sweet, gifted man was, what's another word for shafted? Hello, I'm Brian Moore, the former England hooker. International Rugby is back and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Every Monday, we get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every rook, more and TMO decision. Get the inside track ahead of the next Six Nations and hear the likes of England coach Eddie Jones and the breakthrough star Freddie Stewart. Search for Brian Moore's Full Contact wherever you're listening to this.
Now, Copilot, back in late May 2020, when Planet Normal was first discovered and our humble podcast began, among our very first interviewees was the former head of British intelligence, Sir Richard Dearlove. Back then, as the pandemic was coming into full view and we were six months or so into lockdown, Sir Richard sat down with you and ventured his view that COVID-19 may not have jumped from bats or some other animal to humans in a Chinese wet market. Sir Richard cited instead cutting-edge scientific research, dismissed at the time as a conspiracy that COVID-19 was engineered by scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and then accidentally escaped, not a deliberate act of aggression by Chinese scientists, but a very unfortunate act of incompetence. Well, 18 months on, the notion that COVID-19 was created in a lab is no longer a conspiracy, of course. On the contrary, that possibility is now very actively being investigated by a whole range of national and international official bodies. And one science journalist at the forefront of these investigations is our latest planet normal stowaway, Matt Ridley, who, together with the US-based molecular biologist Dr. Alina Chan, has just written a book entitled Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19. I started by asking Matt why he felt he needed to write this book. Well, I've co-written it. The senior author is a brilliant young scientist called Alina Chan, and the two of us have been collaborating across the Atlantic to produce this book. I think this is the most important topic on the planet. Where did this pandemic start? It's killed millions. It's disrupted the lives of almost everybody on the planet. And there's a whole bunch of people who don't want to find out or don't want us to find out how it started. It might be innocent. We don't know for sure. But it seems to me extremely important. So we don't have to go through all this again. Now, we should say at the outset, you're not an epidemiologist. You do have a degree in zoology. And of course, you're a very well-known and widely respected award-winning science writer in general. But what is it that drew you to this subject? It's something that we've talked about on Planet Normal over the last year and more. Back in May, we talked to Sir Richard Dearlove, who put out there what was then seen as a mad conspiracy theory that COVID might have started in a lab, not leaked deliberately. He called it an engineered escapee. You clearly were thinking along the same lines. And since then, you've done an enormous amount of work to produce this book. Yeah, well, for me, it begins in May 2020. Up until that point, I was convinced this was a natural event. I'd read a couple of papers telling me that from esteemed virologists who supposedly knew what they were talking about. And then I discovered their argument was full of holes and that the evidence that it had begun in the market in Wuhan was actually non-existent. There was no positive tests of any animals in that market. And at the same time, I came across a paper by a brilliant young scientist, Alina Chan, saying this virus is surprisingly well adapted to human beings from the start. That may imply that it was once in a laboratory. Now, at that point, I began to say, well, I guess I better look into this theory. I'll probably be able to dismiss it after a couple of months' work, but it seems to me too important not to. And as you say, I've written about genomics in at least four books. I wrote a book called Genome, which is uh, one of the best-selling books about what the human genome means. So I do know how to understand genomic arguments, but I eventually ended up teaming up with Alina Chan, who knows this topic even better than me. Both of us started out thinking a lab leak was unlikely. Both of us now think it's likely. I think likely is a a good word. Having read the book and much enjoyed it, and, you know, I should say to listeners, it is useful for the general reader. I haven't got a science degree, uh, and I found it all very accessible. I think you and Alina did a good job of explaining complex ideas in a coherent and accessible way, if I may say so. But you do come to a sort of open verdict. This is not a polemic. I think it's important to say that. You're not saying you definitely and absolutely know that COVID-19 originated in a lab. You're saying that that's where the evidence, so far as you can gather evidence, leads you. But you don't have a really, really firm conclusion, do you? We don't know enough yet to be sure either way. Uh, one of the reviewers accused us of pimping the lab leak theory, which is an extremely unpleasant phrase to make about our book, I think. But at the, towards the end of the book, we have two chapters. And in each of them, we hand the microphone, as it were, or the pen, to a lawyer in court. And we say, you're summing up to a jury 
what's the best case you can make? And we make the best possible case we can for it being a natural spillover theory. And by the end of that chapter, I bet you're semi-convinced, as I am, whenever I reread it. And we then hand the microphone to the attorney for the other side, and we say, try and convince the reader that this came out of a lab leak. And we assemble the best arguments from the previous chapters we can for that theory. Uh, and uh, by the end of that chapter, I'm usually pretty convinced that that's the right answer. So, uh, you know, I can still go either way, but the problem is I need more data. And so does Alina. You know, we both say, you know, it's still an open question, but there is a very good case that it might have come from a laboratory. And until we can rule that out, it's very important that we take that theory seriously and don't try and dismiss it as a conspiracy theory, as a lot of senior virologists tried to do right at the start, which was, I think, a rather shocking episode in the history of science. I'd agree with you. And I think it's a very useful and responsible thing for authors to do with such a fraught subject. Because let's be clear, if it does turn out that COVID happened because some engineers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology made a mistake while conducting legitimate research, then of course, the geopolitical implications of that conclusion are are very significant indeed and yet you don't claim to know what you don't know you don't claim to be epidemiologist of course we've heard of your background and dr alina chan is a postdoctoral researcher in medical genetics and synthetic biology at harvard and mit very reputable places but just explain to us matt because some readers and listeners might not be clear why is it that people mess about with viruses in places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Why is it that we do research into so-called gain of functions, which are basically ways of trying to make viruses more and more nasty? Yeah, it's a good question. After the SARS epidemic in 2002-03, there was a lot of interest in China in particular and around the rest of the world in predicting and averting the next pandemic. And after the Ebola pandemic of the mid-2010s, there was a lot more. There was MERS in 2012. There was a general feeling that we needed to spend more money on predicting where a pandemic might come from. And one of the proposals was that a lot of money should go into sampling wildlife, because these things always jump from another animal in the first instance. So sampling wildlife to find out where these risky viruses are and getting to know them, understanding them, getting under their skin. And hundreds of millions of dollars went from the American government through the EcoHealth Alliance, which is a private foundation in New York, some of it ending up with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was also getting even more money from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And the purpose of this research project was to go out into caves, a long way away from Wuhan, by the way, these viruses are not found near Wuhan, find bats, harvest viruses from them, bring them back to the laboratory, put them under the microscope and sequence their genomes, then alter their genomes in such a way that you can grow them in human cells and find out how good they are at infecting human cells, and then say, look, we found one that's on the brink of causing a pandemic, but don't worry, we're on the way to, to creating a vaccine that can prevent it or something like that. That was the ostensible goal of the research. And in the, at the very least, it failed in its ostensible purpose. It did not either predict or prevent this pandemic. Uh, and at the worst, it might have caused it. And there were a lot of scientists saying in the mid-2010s, I'm not sure this program is wise. I'm not sure you're ever going to be able to find which virus out of the millions out there is genuinely likely to cause a pandemic. And if you do, I'm not sure it's wise to juice it up a bit in the lab and teach it to infect human cells and humanized mice, because then if it were to infect a human being, it would be quite good at spreading between humans and other humans. So there is a justification for this research, but it's not looking nearly as uh, watertight as we thought. I mean, I wasn't aware that much of this research was going on. It was a shock to me to find out just how far these virologists have been going. Yeah, even to you. And it certainly was to me as well, as I learned more 
as the COVID pandemic unfolded. So it's worth saying that there may well have been legitimate research going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The WIV is partly Western funded. We should be completely clear. Sometimes viruses escape. I mean, in as recently as the 70s, the smallpox virus famously escaped from a British uh, laboratory, resulting in death of one unfortunate person and the suicide of, of one of the scientists involved. But what really struck me during your book and, and the evidence that you've collated with Alina Chan, who I understand you only met very recently <laughs> because you wrote the book basically over the internet. That, that, that's very, very interesting. We we met 10 days ago, yeah, and it was very moving to, to, to meet her. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite incredible that you've managed to do that. But what struck me was just how obstructionist the Chinese authorities were in late 2019, early 2020, as it was clear a pandemic from whatever cause, wherever the origins came from, was happening, and they weren't quick. They weren't even willing at the early stages, is it fair to say, to let global authorities know, to let the WHO know in order to try and prevent loss of life, not only within China, but beyond. Yeah, they forbade doctors in hospitals from talking about this on social media. They punished them quite severely for doing so. They argued to the world that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission for weeks after it was clear that there was. People were coming into hospital having infected their relatives. You know, there was no way these most of these cases were picking it up from animals. They were picking it up from each other. And then they sequenced the genome and tried to keep it secret for about 10 days. I mean, they put it on a database, but embargoed release of it, so the the rest of the world couldn't get a look at it. So, you know, there was far too much secrecy, obstruction, obfuscation going on in the early weeks. And frankly, it's still going on. You know, the World Health Organization has been to Wuhan, has, has, has teamed up with the scientists there and tried to investigate, and they weren't even shown the details of the early cases, the contact tracing of these early cases to try and work out, you know, what were their professions? Where did they live? What were their jobs? Were they lab workers in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as the U.S. intelligence agency says three of them were? We don't know. We're not allowed to know. Your book makes a key distinction between the origins of COVID, which you and Dr. Chan aren't firmly convinced it was created in a lab. It may well still have been what we call zoonotic. You're not absolutely firm in that conclusion, but you do recount in a really eye-catching way the extent to which the Chinese authorities have been slow to warn the rest of the world about COVID from wherever it came. And I wondered, Matt, what do you think of the geopolitical implications of that lack of of transparency about the spread and the danger posed by COVID once it was at large? Well, I think there's no doubt that if the Chinese authorities had been more forthcoming in the last week of December and the first week of January, there is a good chance we could have nipped this in the bud, that it could have been prevented from turning into a global pandemic. But once it was out by the middle of January, there was no way we were ever going to stop it going global. And in that sense, the Chinese government does bear a responsibility for what happened. I don't want to be in the position of trying to blame people, because I think the way we learn from this kind of thing, rather like with airline accidents, is that instead of focusing on blame, we focus on lessons learned and sharing those lessons. So the ultimate result of this pandemic must be that the world agrees to share information more rapidly and more fully and freely. And one way to do that is for Western countries to come together and, and sign a pandemic treaty, committing to total transparency when these things happen, and eventually shaming countries that won't sign such a treaty into doing so, perhaps even sanctioning them if they don't do so. That, for me, is the, the way ahead. Um, and if China has nothing to hide here, um, then they should be absolutely happy to sign up to such a treaty. Another really interesting aspect of this, to me, Matt, is the social media aspect. You and Alina found lots of information via Twitter. That's not to say the information was frivolous. You then checked where the information came from. You cross-referenced it with databases to the extent that you could. But as well as the quite phenomenal thing that you've written a book with somebody before you even met them, (laughs) it's also true, isn't it, that social media helped you to write this book. So 
it isn't always that social media is bad or intellectually corrosive. I think that's right. I don't think we could have written this book without social media, Twitter in particular. Facebook censored all discussion of a lab leak at an early stage, so that wasn't very helpful. But a bunch of people found each other on Twitter who were serious proper analysts, open source analysts, people who know how to interrogate databases, people who know how to delve into obscure recesses of the internet and find theses and grant applications and entries into genetic databases and things like that. And they started pooling their efforts. A brilliant Spaniard, a great Russian, a, a, a incredibly intelligent Indian, a bunch of others. These were much more used to us in piecing together what happened than most of the scientific establishment, most of the media establishment, or most of the intelligence establishment, frankly. And there's just been a very good example of this. Yesterday, I wrote an article about how the EcoHealth Alliance had been collecting viruses in Laos and sending them to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The EcoHealth Alliance put out a tweet yesterday saying that's not true. We didn't do that. We never went to Laos. So Alina and I replied with a, well, how come this entry in this database has your name on it, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's name on it, and the country of origin says Laos? And how come there's 120 other bat virus samples that say exactly the same thing? Since then, total silence from from the the, the Twitter account of the EcoHealth Alliance. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's it's not been easy. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, trying to get us shut down on Twitter. Some of them will be bots. Some of them will, will be Chinese agents, you know, and things like that. But thank goodness for the ability for ordinary people who just uh, know how to look for things to be able to communicate. Just in summary, Matt, I think it's worth just sketching out the evolution, if you like, of how we view the idea that COVID may have been created in a lab. We do feel strongly about this on Planet Normal. We share your scepticism of official lines of inquiry. It was back in May 2020 when co-pilot Pearson interviewed Sir Richard Dearlove and he put forward this idea. He'd been talking like you to some of the world's top scientists. He wasn't willing to be gainsaid. It was dismissed as a conspiracy theory at the time that in the words of Sir Richard Dearlove, COVID was an engineered escapee, so a, a human-created virus that escaped from a lab. Uh, inadvertently, uh, the Chinese didn't release it, if indeed it was in a lab, uh, in an aggressive way. It was just incompetence. At the time, that was front page news on The Telegraph, that interview, because it was seen as a conspiracy theory. And yet the former head of British intelligence was saying it. It's not seen as a conspiracy theory now, is it? Serious people take this idea very seriously. That's correct, including Joe Biden and his uh, national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. You're right. Richard Dearlove was early and brave in putting his reputation behind this. I should just clarify that it isn't necessarily the case that it was engineered. It could be a purely natural virus, virus that was being handled in a laboratory. But there is a feature in it that, that could have been engineered, that is the kind of thing they were engineering into viruses. And the more we found out, including just a couple of months ago, finding out that there was a plan to engineer exactly this feature into the genome of a SARS like coronavirus. The more we find out, the more even uh, Alina and I are beginning to have to admit that it might be engineered as well as in a lab naturally. You know, you're, you're dead right, Liam, that for a year and a half until May 2021, any attempt to raise this possibility was dismissed as a conspiracy theory by senior politicians, senior journalists, senior scientists literally a conspiracy theory. And you say, you would say, hang on, we're talking about an accident in a lab. That's by definition not a conspiracy. <laughs> and yet, and in May 2021, the dam broke and the media had to hurriedly go back and re-edit some of their articles, which had sort of dismissed this idea and change some of the, the tags they'd put on them because they had to admit after a open letter to science by a number of senior scientists, partly orchestrated by Alina Chan, they had to admit that there was a significant possibility that this was the best explanation. Finally, Matt, do you think one reason we didn't want to acknowledge the Western establishment, didn't want to entertain the idea that this could be man-made in a Chinese lab was because they're worried about the geopolitical implications of that? I get that very explicitly from people. People say to me, you may be right, but don't you think it's better if we don't find out? Because if we do, there might be a row with China. 
Um, I'm sorry. I think the truth is more important than how it looks to other people. You know, I mean, I think that's the worst kind of appeasement argument. I'm not here to try and suggest we start a war with China or something. I'm definitely not. But I do think that it is important we find out and we don't use reasons like that to not investigate. Matt Ridley, congratulations both to you and Dr. Alina Chan on your book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. I read it, I consumed it, I should say, in a single weekend in just a couple of sittings. It's a fantastic read and you should be proud of what you've done. Thank you so much, Liam. Lovely to talk to you. Well, Liam, I haven't read the book yet, but Matt was raising such interesting points, wasn't he? I mean, as you said, we were on to this very, very early on on, on the podcast and it, it's fascinating to feel it's coming out now, you know, and, and that Matt and Alina Chan have written this very thoughtful book. I mean, I was intrigued by several things he said. I mean, that thing that jumped out, which is that senior people saying, oh, isn't it better if we don't find out because it'll cause difficulty with China? And as Matt Ridley says, I mean, what kind of attitude is that? I mean, has the Western world become so craven that we don't even think that, you know, a global pandemic that's been unleashed, that we shouldn't even call them to account? I mean, not particularly or specifically whether this was a leak from the lab in Wuhan, but even if the virus wasn't engineered, as this book viral points out, the Chinese are clearly culpable for being so slow to admit what happened. I think that's exactly right. It is a really good read. I think Matt Ridley is a very talented writer. He's got a zoology degree. He is a proper scientist, but he's also a really good journalist. So he writes about complex issues in a simple, accessible way. I, I devoured the book in a couple yeah. of things last weekend, and I'm very glad that I, I read it. And the real value of it, Alison, isn't just that Matt Ridley and Dr. Alina Chan don't claim that they know things that they don't. So they're not saying they have slam dunk evidence. This was to no. use Sir Richard Dillard's phrase, an engineered escapee. They're saying it's a plausible theory and they put it forward. Indeed, they spend part of the book arguing the opposite. Mm, mm. <laughs> In, so I think reviews that suggest that this is a, a one-sided polemic that's alarmist are completely beyond the pale, frankly, because the book itself is a, is a balanced argument about on 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 what's most probable. Um, Matt himself was onto this idea um, back in May June 2020 when we were as well. So I feel that he has been in the trenches alongside the two of us in not trying to spread conspiracy theories. On the contrary, in pointing out that. This is where our factual analysis and research is taking us. And is it any wonder it was dubbed a conspiracy theory when, as Matt Ridley and Dr. Alina Chan point out, we've had so much of the political class and the media, of course, basically filing this issue in the too difficult cabinet. Just before we go, Alison, we should say that literally as we've been recording Planet Normal, the fears that you expressed at the top of this podcast about safety concerns for people crossing the channel. Your worst fears have come true. It seems that more than 20 migrants may have drowned, possibly more in the last hour that news has come through in the worst channel tragedy that we've seen. Yes, I think it, it does look, Liam, like there have been 30 deaths, which is the the biggest single day loss of life from migrant migrant crossings in, in, in the channel. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, this is getting into the winter now. These crossings should definitely have been stopped. There's talk of French officials, French police pictured standing by and watching as dinghies were launched from the coast. Um, the UK has been paying France about, I think, something like of the order of 50 million to try and stop these boats. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely horrendous. As we speak, news is now coming through that there's going to be an emergency Cobra meeting this evening, Wednesday evening, as we're recording on this issue. And I think it all serves to reinforce the point, Alison, that you were making in your column and the point we've been making on this podcast. You know, nobody wants people to drown. But as long as asylum seekers and other economic migrants who come to the UK in these small boats are then basically allowed to roam freely, which is what ends up happening in lots of cases, with very little chance that they're going to be 
deported, then they will continue to pay thousands and thousands of pounds equivalent to people traffickers to put them in these completely unsafe vessels crossing in the middle of winter, one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. It seems to me that if you want to stop these deaths, then you have to either stop people getting into these boats or having some kind of offshore processing centre. That means the number of people who make that crossing is by definition much less because people won't fancy being placed in an offshore location while their asylum claims are scrutinised and then processed. So it's an absolutely awful human tragedy, but it's a human tragedy that derives, in my view, in part, not just from the people traffickers taking advantage of people's aspirations, but also the failure of British government policy. Yes, that's right, Liam. But, you know, these absolutely appalling criminal gangs who are, I think, making up to £300,000 per boat of their human cargo and just, you know, letting these people set to sea, particularly now, particularly now when really the boat should have stopped. If they were going to, you know, if they must come, they should have stopped weeks ago, really. It it almost feels like it was a, a terrible tragedy waiting to happen. Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love hearing from you. And Halligan and I usually borrow from them heavily in no, our you own... you borrow pri- from them. You <laughs> I cut borrow. and stick them in your column. <laughs> we don't get emails about the gilts market and the Bank of England, do we? God. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> I, I, don't, I rope keep me it. Into your, don't rope me into your dodgy journalistic practices, Pearson. <laughs> now, how many you, times? You like, you, uh, like, you, like uh, those people, you like those people I know that say, oh, do you want a chocolate when you've already eaten the bag of chocolates and you offer me one at the end so you can then tell yourself that we've shared them? I have often tried to quote to you, co-pilot Halligan, the immortal words of T.S. Eliot, immature poets borrow, mature poets steal, and I'm a mature poet. Here's one from Steve. Hello, Liam and Alison. Looking at our world in data, as I know Liam does, something very interesting is emerging across Europe. All the North European countries, except France and Sweden, that are now in trouble were months later vaccinating than us, And therefore, the benefits of the vaccines are only now beginning to wear off, whereas our jabs began to lose their benefit just as we freed up in July. That was your point earlier, Alison. This seems to reinforce the elephant in the room called wane, as in waning vaccination efficiency after three to six months. By not having restrictions since Freedom Day, the UK has arguably allowed cases to remain high in the summer, whereas countries with heavier restrictions are now paying the price in the winter indoor season. It will be interesting to see if France follows the rest over the next couple of months. They were particularly vaccine hesitant earlier on, after all. So is this flattening of the UK curve the result of a mix of third-jabbed elderly vulnerable and natural herd immunity in the young and healthy, as argued for by the Great Barrington Declaration? The battleground between intelligent herd immunity and dogmatic lockdown fanaticism is only just beginning, in my humble opinion, says Steve. If France begins to spike over Christmas despite all its controls, then it's got to be game over for the lockdowners. As has often been said, your podcasts are the most amazing lifeline of common sense available. Your ability to mix compassion with penetrating analysis and great guest interviews is second to none. Thanks so much from Steve. And this is from James. Hi, Liam and Alison. I was raging in the summer of 2020 when the government decided it could control a virus. I was incandescent when when my science-loving elder daughter was refused entry to her school laboratory in the autumn of 2020. I was furious when my youngest daughter was locked out of school in the summer of 2021 because she stood next to someone in a dinner queue. Now that I've calmed down, well, a bit, and had a chance to reflect on the strange emotions brought on by the government's rationale for turning our country upside down to try and eliminate a virus rather than showing care for those most at risk. I've come to the conclusion that we've been through a period of unaccountable government. No media challenge, no opposition challenge, no legal challenge. And for me, it's been a genuinely scary experience that I thought was impossible in the UK. Planet Normal has been a genuine ray of sunshine throughout. Thank you and stay orthogonal to the orthodoxy. This is from Marilyn. Alison is so right about the nonsense coming from a public health director cancelling school Christmas activities as these could spread the virus. 
Does the importance of children's mental health and well-being mean nothing to these people? Witness the pew in Westminster Cathedral at the late lamented Sir David Amos's Requiem this week. Former Prime Ministers and others squashed like sardines in a pew, maskless, as were many others in the congregation. What? No social distancing? Was there any useless, in brackets, hand sanitizer available? If these important people had also intended to enjoy their children's nativity play in the East Riding, for instance, they would have been sorely disappointed. Yes, one rule for them and another for us simple folk. Enough of the hypocrisy. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison, it's your turn. I think it's going to be Marilyn and the lovely email, uh, Liam, about uh, Save Our Nativity Plays, particularly so co-pilot Halligan can give us a rendition of Little Donkey, perhaps in the Planet Normal special Christmas edition. Ring out those bells tonight, <laughs> Bethlehem. <laughs> and if you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website, you lucky things. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I will reply between 11am and 12 noon. It is you, our worldly wise Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners, who make this podcast. We do learn so much from you and love to keep in touch. And you steal some of their emails and stick them in your column. (laughs) Do keep emailing us, if only to keep Alison in clover. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our wonderful producers, Isabel Bajard, Louisa Wells and Danny Hall and our editor Theodora Leloudis. Stars the lot of them. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 